Welcome to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. When people are injured due to negligence or while on the job, they need all the help they can get. Doctors Armin Feldman and Mike Bummer help ensure they get it. Join them as they discuss the newest medical subspecialty of medical legal consulting. Learn how attorneys can gain a competitive advantage in PI, workers' comp, and medical malpractice cases. Armin and Mike can help you better understand the medical issues in your cases, leading to larger settlement amounts and the best possible medical care for clients. They can help save you time and increase case value, all without breaking the bank. Let's get started. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. I'm Dr. Armin Feldman, and as always, I'm here with my friend, colleague, and partner in Physicians Legal Consultants, Dr. Mike Bummer. And Mike, I want to give you kudos for coming up with this topic. I think this is an absolutely great topic. And also, I want to uh, give you kudos for coming up with the title for the topic, which is The Invisible Wounds. You are far too kind, Armin. Uh, <laughs> hello to all of our listeners today. This is going to be uh, something a little different. We're trying to keep this podcast fresh and come at all of our various topics that we work with on a weekly basis uh, relevant and interesting. And this one jumped out at me because we we talk to a lot of our attorneys' clients. And when we do our phone interviews, we hear a lot of different uh, stories that they tell that some might be relevant, some may not be. And this jumped out to me because it's something that comes up quite frequently in our mm -hmm. work. And mm -hmm. I should even mention, because if, if you don't know already for our listeners, if you have a case or want to discuss anything with us, you can always uh, find us on LinkedIn or write a email to comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. And we'd be happy to discuss uh, a case like this or, or any case with you to see if we could help you guys out. But today's topic, uh, which which you already mentioned that we're calling invisible wounds, we're going to discuss post-traumatic stress disorder. And this, this comes up a lot because our clients have often dealt with uh, a very traumatic car crash. Or and something else traumatic, right? I mean, any, any kind of traumatic thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I make that uh, error sometimes because of the volume of car crashes right. that we that we see. But you're absolutely right. It could be a dog bite. It could be a slip and fall. It could be a, any type of injury, work injury. Right. And the the world of mental health, we all know, is is very frustratingly misunderstood and underdiagnosed. And we have a unique opportunity as consulting doctors on these cases that we get to really discuss in depth, in a casual, kind of non-confrontational uh, way with our attorney's clients, what they've experienced uh, during their event, during their, their accident or crash, what came in time to follow. We often are talking to these clients six months, 12 months, 18 months after the event because it takes that long as we know for medical right. records and medical care to, to pan out. And so we, we often hear about post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Right. And let me just back up for just a minute. So when Mike and I were kicking around topics for this particular podcast, and Mike, you came up with this great idea of maybe what we should talk about is uh, how uh, often we come up with a diagnosis that has not been discovered yet or been missed because the treating doctors are all working on their particular part of the case. But were the ones with the 30,000 foot view. And that led you to tell me about a case where, yes, this was not discovered, but it happened to be post-traumatic stress disorder that you picked up in your client interview. Exactly. I had no expectation from my attorney that when I was going to make this call that it, that it was going to lead to a discussion of our mental health. But uh, why don't I just go ahead and yeah. I'll, I'll just give you the, our listeners, the details of the case and we'll learn through that. Yeah. This woman is 28 years old. She is a high functioning, uh, 28 uh, year old woman. And she, uh, had the misfortune of actually being in two separate car crashes mm-hmm. in an eight month period. The both they both were at a medium to high speed. One, uh, she's she was on a, a kind of a high speed parkway mm-hmm. and was stopped in traffic, but abruptly and and had seen a car uh, coming at about thirty to forty miles per hour behind her, who was not prepared to stop. Mm-hmm. Heard a loud screech, and uh, her ta- her car was totaled. Airbags went off. And she um, sustained only minor damages, only some soft tissue injuries. Uh, Mm -hmm. Separate in this report, I discussed her neck pain and back pain and other soft tissue injuries that she was suffering from. But when I discussed with her on the phone, and I should mention the first crash that she was in was a little bit less quote unquote traumatic. She was driving home from work early in the morning and an impaired driver had uh, tried to swerve out around her because they didn't see her slow down for a light Mm. and they uh they hit the back side of her car pretty aggressively Mm. and she uh, in that instance had some whiplash and again some soft tissue injuries but she started to feel after this second crash that was more traumatic a bit like she had a a uh, red x on her Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so when i was speaking to her about her other injuries she said something that caught me right away. She said, uh, just in casually said, every time I get in the car now, I, th- I, th- I just feel like I'm going to get into a wreck. Yeah. I said, wow. And she said, and she said, and these are her words that I included, by the way, quotes in the report. I'm terrified. I get into my car and I just start to freak out sometimes. Hmm. And this is, this was a year after these crashes had occurred. Right. And, and- this really hadn't made it into her medical record, right? No, no, nothing. She she had a baseline uh, diagnosis of a generalized anxiety disorder, but she was not on any medications for it. It was not something that impaired her life at all. But there was this underlying uh, generalized anxiety disorder, which interestingly, mm-hmm. Armin, the literature, when I did a search and was able to incorporate this into the report, the post-traumatic stress disorder is more likely in someone with an underlying anxiety right. disorder. Right. So she was in a way kind of predisposed and didn't even know it. And this became a, uh, a functional loss of, of this case. Right. A damage in the case. All right. So 
Additionally, things that she told me that made me actually tell my attorney about this diagnosis and include this diagnosis in my report. Again, reminding our listeners, I'm not a treating doctor. I I, I did not. Um, and I made that clear with her in the phone interview. In fact, I only kind of questioned in a way, uh, asked her if she had heard about PTSD. I didn't even get into this with her because I wasn't, and I'm not in a position to offer advice, treatment, or guidance. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I merely was going to direct future you know, healthcare for her uh, in addition for her benefit and the attorneys to, you know, be able to get her the care she needed. Right. So moving on since that second crash, she told me that I still have dreams and this is in the report, both during the day and at night that I'm getting into a wreck. Mm -hmm. I, I drive into the city for work and I'm honestly terrified. She says, I still hear the sound of crunching metal when I start to daydream Mm -hmm. a year later to remind everyone. So she avoids driving. She admitted, she said she'll let her fiance drive whenever possible because she gets so scared. She says she freaks out if she can't leave work a little early because there's additional traffic during rush hour. She asks her boss and said she begs him to leave early and she'll make up the hours later. I mean, these are all things that she's telling me and I'm sitting here jotting them down, taking notes like this. This poor, unfortunate young woman has PTSD a year later. And she went on to say, I feel like I have horrible luck now. Like someone's always going to pull out in front of me or hit me from behind. I, um, I'm seriously scared. The next wreck is going to be so much worse. She said she's, and she shared a story that just had recently happened with her family. She was going Mm -hmm. out to dinner with her parents and her dad was driving and had to swerve because someone had kind of entered his lane and something that she admitted and I, we had agreed kind of happens on a weekly basis on, on major highways. Sure. And she said she got so upset and she was in the back seat that her heart wouldn't stop racing. They got yeah. home. She couldn't calm herself down. And for over 30 minutes, she, she sat there and people were checking, her parents were checking on her and she said, no one could understand why I was so upset. And this happens all the time now. Yeah, you know, Mike, as you're reporting this, I, I feel bad for this uh, poor uh, client, but um, I'm checking off check marks on how to make the diagnosis for post-traumatic stress disorder, right, on the, on the criteria that are outlined for this condition. Let's jump over and discuss that because I'm kind of at the end of, of, the, of the accounts that she shared with me that I was going to share with our listeners. So, Sure. Let's talk about the DSM-5. Yeah. So uh, there is a, as most of our listeners probably know, uh, there is a way to make psychiatric diagnoses called the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, the fifth edition. And this helps clinicians, psychiatrists, uh, primary care doctors, and others to uh, be able to make psychiatric diagnoses. Now, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but I, I don't know how to quite do this without actually going over the, all the criteria. So there's several criteria. In, in the first section, there's got to be a stressor, right? Like a direct exposure or witnessing trauma. In the uh, second criteria, there have to be intrusion symptoms like unwanted, upsetting memories, nightmares, flashbacks, physical uh, reactivity after the exposure to the traumatic 
reminders and that kind of thing. The next criteria is avoidance, like trauma-related uh, avoidance that will stimulate trauma-related thoughts or trauma-related reminders. The next criteria is negative alterations in cognition and mood. So things like um, inability to recall key features of the trauma, uh, negative mood or uh, what's called affect, feelings of isolation, um, exaggerated uh, blame of the self or others for causing the trauma, uh, negative thoughts and assumptions about oneself and the world, that kind of thing. The next uh, category is alterations in arousal and activity. So irritability, aggression, risky or destructive behavior, hypervigilance, always being on the watch, right? Um, Heightened startle reaction, trouble concentrating, trouble sleeping. These are all things that your client was talking about. Yep. The Then a few final uh, criteria, the symptoms have to last for more than one month. Uh, the next thing is the symptoms create distress or functional impairment. Like that example you gave, she was in the backseat of a car, had to be taken home, uh, and had a whole flare-up of problems. And uh, the final criteria is that uh, the symptoms can't be related to something else, you know, can't be attributed to something else. It's really remarkable. I think that looking at those criteria just on paper alone, someone might feel like, oh, that's a lot to have to actually satisfy for this diagnosis or whatnot. But like you said, it, it the simple story that I shared, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to or their clients have said, check all of these boxes. Yeah, yeah. And it's not uncommon, right? Uh, and something that we have to help our attorney clients with, it's not uncommon that the report of this is not in the uh, medical records immediately or in the weeks and sometimes even following months after the accident because of what we call this. And that is, in other words, it's an invisible wound that uh, broken bones, soft tissue injuries, ruptured discs, uh, whatever it is, pain uh, in the shoulder pain, whatever it is, that's what's in front of everybody, in front of the doctors bothering uh, the client. And so these invisible wounds get missed. And uh, we won't get into this in any detail, but then one of the ways we can help the attorneys is, well, opposing counsel is going to say, well, this isn't related because it's not in the medical record immediately. And we have to, we can uh, talk about that in reports and so forth. And additionally, in this report, as you know, we then estimate future medical care and mm-hmm. and direct a bit of uh, our attorney to what care we think that would most benefit their client and also the cost of that. So in this report, it was it was plain and simple. I included that DSM-5 criteria mm-hmm. and I plain and spelled out that ongoing psychiatric care has a cost, behavioral psychotherapy was going to be needed to treat PTSD, and then the gold standard of therapy to try is EMDR, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a really interesting treatment that is known and effective for PTSD. 
And I included these suggestions and the cost of those in this report for my attorney for their settlement package. Yeah, yeah, great. And that's that's how we can really be of help to the attorney and, of course, ultimately to the injured person. Well, I don't let me talk about one other case. I, I don't want us to run too long uh, or over our typical amount of time, but uh, this is a very uh, sad situation and also related to PTSD. So this is a case of a 38-year-old woman who uh, was involved in pretty severe uh, auto crash. So she was driving and her husband was in the front passenger seat. They're both properly restrained. They were traveling on a highway at highway speeds when a small commercial truck made a left-hand turn directly into the passenger side mm. of their car. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the client's husband was killed uh, at the scene and he died at the scene. Mm. And th uh, the client that I was uh, helping the attorney with, uh, she received multiple severe injuries. She required flight for life helicopter transport to the hospital. She went through 22 months of intensive medical treatment for her injuries. And she actually, after all that treatment, Mike, she was left with uh, uh, knee pain with limited range of motion and instability in the knee, left hip pain, left shoulder pain, low back pain, neck pain, and persistent migraines. Now, in addition to that, this isn't one where I picked up the diagnosis, but she was diagnosed with post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, and she got some treatment for it, including EMDR, and she started the EMDR, and she couldn't complete it. In fact, uh, she said that the treatment made her feel worse by recalling, uh, she called the treatment, quote, evil, because it it made her recall too vividly the events of the accident. So obviously she went through a period of mourning for the death of her husband. Uh, and then she had a whole slew of PTSD symptoms. She had quote, uh, in her words, countless flashbacks that could be uh, triggered by specific stimuli or flashbacks that seem to start with any without any known reason. Uh, she had these persistent flashbacks almost daily. And she had, in addition to that, traumatic thoughts, intrusive thoughts, feelings of uh, panic. Um, she actually not only had images, but had smells and uh, mm. bodily sensations, all related to the accident event itself. Mm. And she had uh, been in some psychotherapy. She had taken some um, psych uh, psychiatric medications and she just wasn't getting better. So when I did my phone interview with this woman, it struck me that something else is going on here, right? Why, not only does she have a, a horrible case of PTSD, she went through a horrible experience. Her husband dies in the accident, but she couldn't even tolerate 
I'm, I'm sure they said to her, look, this treatment's going to help you. There's a high chance of helping you. And she couldn't make it through the treatment that was most likely to help her. And so we started uh, talking about that. And here's what I found out, which apparently wasn't in the medical record, but here's what I found out is that her husband was a construction worker and he had a some kind of shoulder injury. It sounded like maybe he had a rotator cuff injury. He had, had never gotten treatment for it and he would complain about it. And she said she would quote, she would nag him every so often. You've got to go see a doctor about this. And so finally, after her um, telling him this many times, he finally said, okay, I'll go see the doctor. Well, it was on the way to the doctor appointment that this accident occurred. And so she had these feelings that she was the cause of her husband's death, because if she hadn't been after him to go to this doctor appointment, he'd still be alive. And so my understanding, my interpretation of that was, here's the reason why I thought the EMD didn't work, EMDR didn't work, is that I think she was, this was all unconscious, right? This was not part of her conscious thoughts, but it was my um, understanding of the situation that she couldn't get better, right? She was so guilty about this perception that she had killed her husband by egging him on to go to the doctor and they were in this accident and he died that she felt she deserved to be this miserable. And so that's what I went back and told her attorney. I said, look, I really think that um, until this issue is addressed, this woman is never getting better. And so um, I wrote a report. I actually talked to the treating psychiatrist and the treating psychotherapist. And I got some feedback later that they hadn't appreciated this, that uh, the shift, there was a shift in the psychotherapy and they started uh, working on um, w what we in the uh, uh, psychoanalytic world would call uh, being able to make an interpretation. In other words, helping this woman to change something from unconscious to conscious so she could understand it and work it through. And that's where she was when I lost touch, uh, you know, with the case and the case was eventually settled and all this was part of the damages. Uh, but that was a way that a very bad PTSD situation, which probably wasn't getting better until some of these underlying psychological problems could be uh, worked on and hopefully worked through. What a tragic case, though. Gosh. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So, Armin, do you think there is any utility to, to taking a couple minutes and discussing EMDR? I have some information that I'd be happy to share with our listeners, but only if you think that would be helpful for them. Yeah, why don't you do that? And uh, then I'll just throw in one postscript on that. But yeah, go ahead. Okay, great. So EMDR, we, we've referenced it a few times now in this episode, and it stands again for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So it's been around for about 33 years. And I'll be honest, I didn't know all of this, but I, in preparation for today's podcast, I made sure to kind of catch up on some of the details that it's been around for 33 years and very successfully treating 
PTSD. It's an eight-phase treatment. So what, what it does is they use eye movements or other types of bilateral stimulation of the body during the first part of the session. Then the person who's administering the test, the clinician, determines what memories the person's but the person is suffering from and kind of is was traumatic, you know, in causing this this uh, stress disorder and the stress in the patient. And while they have the uh, patient kind of hold the aspects of that event in their mind, and this makes sense for why your client was particularly sensitive to it, mm-hmm. while holding those aspects of the event or thought in their mind, they use their eyes to track the therapist's hand as it moves back and forth across the client's field of vision. Mm-hmm. And as this happens for, for reasons that they've studied at, you know, Ivy league institutions at some of the best psychiatric treatment centers in the country, there's something that happens in the brain that connects with the biological mechanisms of this rapid eye movement. And in rapid eye movement of sleep, I think is where they, they kind of, this idea was born and internal associations arise and the clients actually begin to process the memory and disturbing feelings differently. Right. And this creates an emotional change in the person's brain and the way they're wired emotionally as it relates to those events. It's so, so interesting. And, you know, in this case, you have a, a significant car crash victim, like the one I had described where they felt horror, you know, they felt in intense fear and you put them back in that moment and you accelerate their intellectual and emotional process of that event. And what happens in the end is that the great majority of clients conclude that then EMDR empowers them and can kind of allow them to debase that experience and kind of like remove some of that that intensity from it and how the power it has over them and so they actually it transforms them is the way this is phrased it doesn't just let them cope better it's not a it's actually a rewiring that transforms their brain and how they view the subconscious associations with that event yeah fascinating isn't that fascinating it is yeah so let me put one postscript on that before we wrap up so Here's something just to keep in mind. There is something now beyond EMDR, and that is ketamine infusion therapy. This is really pretty new. And ketamine is a a tranquilizer in low doses. In higher doses, it can actually be used as anesthesia for surgery. And I've seen it used uh, primarily in that in that situation in, in children, by the way. But um, but just like uh, how it's done in EMDR, the way they do this is they give the uh, person low dose ketamine and then do some of the very similar things that they're doing with EMDR. And the theory with this is that it's uh, massively effective in helping people to process and actually change, like Mike was saying, uh, change, not just uh, to say, oh, I can live with this, but change the biochemistry or change the, the, the way the neurons are firing to actually help them to overcome 
uh, the and process the traumatic events and overcome the, the symptoms of the PTSD. So I don't think it's used as um, much or as frequently as routinely as EMDR, but it certainly is on the on the horizon. I believe there's a lot of research with psychedelics and psilocybin yes. in the same in the same way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, it is uh, being used, but it's not being used uh, in a routine way like EMDR is. Well, we uh, certainly thank you for listening. If you have a question, if you have a comment, certainly for our attorney listeners, if you have a case, please contact us at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. We really appreciate your listenership. We can see the numbers. Our numbers are going up. We uh, really appreciate our uh, loyal listeners. Uh, those of you, please tell your friends and colleagues uh, about our podcast. We would really appreciate that as well. And we look forward to having you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. For more information about the show and to listen to all the podcast episodes, go to physicianshelpingattorneys.com. You can also email Armin and Mike at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. Music.